welcome to those in the room this morning. Welcome to those watching online. Trust that this message will make it onto YouTube. Uh, I want to say thanks to Gary for speaking last week. If you weren't here, oh man, what a fantastic message. Uh, just uh, worth listening to. You can go online and find it. We're just talking about God's pursuit of us, and uh, it's just talking uh, about the story of Jonah. Um, he's started a petition called Bring Back Gary. So if uh, you don't enjoy today's message, sign the petition. Gary will return. Uh, not yet. We aren't that far yet. I know. I can just hear it today. There won't be any amens. It'll just be bring back Gary. All right. Uh, how many of you brought your Bibles? If you didn't bring your Bibles, no shouting, bring back Gary. All right. There we go. Perfect. Thank you. Um, if you grab them, just open them together. Actually, well, there's going to be a number of scriptures today, and for your um, enjoyment and uh, convenience, they'll be on the screen. But I'd encourage you to take notes. Hopefully, there's some note sheets in front of you there. Maybe you brought your own. Grab a pen. Um, I would really encourage you to, to listen carefully to what's said today. Uh, if you've got some thoughts or whatever, jot them down, and uh, you have a chance to go home and, and take a look again. So uh, we uh, want to help people find Christ in this place. Find community. There's nothing that our there's 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 nothing that satisfies the longing in our soul except for Him. You can chase after everything, but until you find yourself in Him, you're going to feel empty. And the the good news is that for the empty, there is the fullness of uh, of knowing Him for yourself. And that's what we're in a series. We're in part four of a series called "I Am." And it's uh, designed to help people know God for themselves. It's not, it's the, the idea is you don't come to church just to hear me say something about God. That, that's maybe the, the bare minimum. It is to inspire and, and draw you to his word that you might know him for yourself. We know that God reveals himself through creation. He reveals himself through the life of Jesus. He reveals himself through scripture as well. And uh, yesterday, is, uh, if you've been reading through John with us, uh, you would have read through John 14 Yesterday, And I'm going to put this on the screen. It says in John 14, verse 9, it says this. Jesus and Philip, Philip and the disciples are asking Jesus, like, hey, can you just show us what God looks like? Can you just show us the Father? And Jesus replies to him and says this. Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you can put a different name, your name in there. But he says, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's like, basically, you saw me, you saw God. So why are you asking me to show him to you? I thought, man, here are these disciples. They've been following Jesus around for three years. He's about to be crucified. That's, this is his, like, his final conversations, and they're still asking these basic questions. And Jesus is like, man, like, I've been with you for three years. How, how, how do you still not know who I am? And that's not unique to those disciples, by the way. There's people all around this room. You've been in church. You've been around Christianity for years, maybe decades, and yet you don't really know him. Maybe you find yourself in that place today. And that is the hope that even though like Jesus didn't come down hard on Philip for, for he, he, he opened the door to say, Philip, let me explain. This is who God is. You're looking at him. And today, our hope is that you would see him, that you would know him for yourself, uh, that it, it would be, it'd be more than just a, a, a Sunday routine, but you'd know the God of the universe for yourself. You know, it takes effort to get to know somebody. It takes effort, it takes intention, it takes conversation, it takes observation. Uh, you got to ask some questions to get to know people. In our pre-marriage class, we give them this sheet of page, uh, of uh, four sheets of questions, like 300 questions. And you get some of the ones who took the course, you remember that. And we send like, these, married couple, or these pre-married couples home to talk, and they ask hundreds of questions of each other. Why? Because when they, when they start dating, they're in love, they're, they think they know each other completely. And the questions reveal that they don't. And it also is the greatest time for those things you're like, oh, I never knew that about you. 
It's good to find that out when you're like totally in love with somebody, because then it's easy to work through. You find those out later, you're like, how did I never know? You didn't ask enough questions. And the same with this with us and the Lord. This is questions like, Lord, who, like we said last week, who are you? What do you want me to do? Uh, any of you ever, did any of you have pen pals when you were a kid? Some of you, I know the younger generation is like, what's a pen? Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. Back in the day, they had this thing before, like the internet, and, and where you would send letters to somebody across the world, and they would send letters back to you, and you'd get to build this friendship. Well, there's all kinds of stories on the internet. The picture here is of Carol Leachin from Boston and Jane Anderson from New Zealand. They became pen pals at the age of nine, sending, it would take weeks for their letters to get back and forth, and uh, they had only written communication. They moved from writing letters to emails, but they never spoke on the phone. They never did FaceTime or anything like that. And then 56 years later, they met for the first time in the airport in Boston, and as they write about it, they're like, we recognized each other instantly. As soon as we saw each other, we knew it was them. How? Because of what they had written. I thought, man, you know, some people have that feeling like, God, I want to know you. I just can't figure out how to know you. And you know what? We can know him based on what he's written. Man, as we dig into his word today, it is that same revealing that's like, oh, as I, as I feed on your word, I'm aware of who you are. And we recognize him in our life. We recognize his voice. We recognize him because of what we've read. So that's why it's so important for us to study his word regularly, daily, that we might know him. And we need more than that. Just that Holy Spirit would illuminate it in us. The, the, the Jewish uh, nation of Israel had the Old Testament. And they'd search it every, like religiously. And yet they missed Jesus when he arrived. And he's like, hey, it all points to me. And they somehow missed it. It can happen today, too. We don't depend on our own intellect, our own understanding. Lord, we want you to lead us. My prayer is that that is your prayer today. Let Holy Spirit, you would lead me. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? Help me to hear. And so over the past couple of weeks, we learned that God is light. We learned that God is holy. Today, we want to talk about this topic of God is love. So if you're writing it down, today's uh, title is I Am Love. You know, I think we'd all agree that love's a good thing, wouldn't we? Across the room, I don't think I need to do a show of hands. I think most of you would say, yeah, I, I think love is great. And then there, I, I know the room, there'll be some who play the devil's advocate. Love sucks, right? Like, it's like, I, we, whatever. What, so, but my, my question for you is, how do you define that word love? When you say love is great or, uh, I, you know, I love, love's just, oh, love's a pain. How do you define the word love? What do you mean by that? As we jump in today, I want to start with this, that there's a lot of confusion around this word love today. In our world, in our culture, in the church as well. There's a lot of confusion just everywhere. And I think even uh, you know, as people sing about it, the songs on the radio just, just magnify the confusion. You know, you got the Beatles who back in the day sang, all you need is? Love. Yeah, that was the easy one, right? All you need is love. And Tina Turner would respond with, what's love got to do with it? You know, and uh, Jackie DeShannon would say, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And then Hathaway would return from my generation. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Roxette would return and say, it must have been love, but it's over now. It must have been good, but I lost it somehow, right? We got some Roxette fans here. That's good. Do you know, though, you think about this. Look, look, look at all the differences of the approaches to this singular word of love and the songs that we hear all the time just filling the, the gap with confusion, really. And I don't think that's 
by accident. You know, confusion is actually a strategy and a tool of the enemy. And today, you know, the, you know, the songs that we sing, it, it lodges in our minds. Likely, you'll remember the songs we sang this morning, a line from that. You'll remember, I exalt thee a week from now, but probably maybe not a single quote from this message. So I thought maybe I'll just sing the whole message to you today. No, no. It would be good, but no. Confusion is a war strategy of the enemy. <laughs> Bring back Gary. All right, we got one. <laughs> uh, it's great. It's great. We're not going to sing anymore. All right. The crowd has spoken. But think about this for a minute. Think about all the confusion around this word love. What happens when we say it's a tool of the enemy? When we say the enemy, I'm specifically meaning Satan and his minions. We have a spiritual enemy. It's not people. But when there's this confusion around things, when, when, when something's confused, it, it makes likely the wrong decision uh, in the moment uh, or rarely makes a wise decision. And when there's confusion around these, any topic, his hand, the enemy's hand is usually in the mix. We look at things in, the, in our world where there's confusion Believe me, the enemy's hand is in the mix. And we talk about this word love and confusion. Believe me, his hand is in the mix. You know, there's various uses and definitions of the word love, and I think that's part of why it's, it's, it, it is as confusing as it is. You look at the dictionary, it'll describe love as this, a strong feeling of affection. And you look up the synonyms, they'll, they'll use words like desire and lust and infatuation and passion. Like just all of those can be love. Love, we know, is a euphemism for sex, where people talk about making love. There's so many relational uh, t- types of relationships, and it's like, we just kind of, like, well, that's love, and, and that's love, and that's love, and that's love. We've gotten to the spot where we're like, we don't know how to define all of them, so we'll just say love is love. Love is love. But I want to ask you this question this morning. Do we describe anything else in our world with its own word? Do we use the same word to describe a, a word in anything else? If I said to you, hey, could you describe grass to somebody who hasn't seen it? Grass is grass. No, you would use other descriptive words. Grass is green. Grass grows in the ground. Grass comes up. Grass, grass just gets it everywhere. Grass gets... It, there's something about grass. Gets cut. Gets cut. We, we, yeah, there you go. If you need cut, five points. We talk about cats, describe cats. We don't be like cats are catty or dogs are doggish or Mark is Markish. Well, which Mark? And how do we describe these things? Don't we use descripting, different descriptive words for all of that? And there's a war on our words right now. There's this war to try and change the definitions of things so that you are powerless to actually speak any life and truth into any situation any longer. Here's what you think. You basically, you can put whatever in the blank and call it love. And if you do, whatever's in the blank is love. Love is love. You have, like, you have no right to say anything against it. What right do I have to say that, that well, I can't say anything against that. That's love. That's love. We end up in these spots where our words get mis- misused, mistranslated. And so the flip side is the same. Right? If you say, oh, you can't say anything about that because, well, now that's hate. Let me ask you this question. How do we define hate? Well, hate is hate. I agree. True hate is hate. But that doesn't mean you can just fill in the blank with whatever you want and then call it hate. Well, disagree. If you disagree, that's hate. Well, I would say this, that see the GPS. Men, your GPS does not hate you. It just disagrees with your choice of direction. You might hate it, but it doesn't hate you. It just disagrees. Women, your scale just disagrees with you. It doesn't hate you. I know. I'm, 
<laughs> Bring back Gary. <laughs> it doesn't hate you. You may hate it, but so what, you see what we're saying here? You can't blanket statement and say disagreement is, is hate. I hope that's the most offensive thing I say this morning. You know, shouting at another person, though. Well, we would say that's hate if you're shouting at someone. Have you been to a kid's Little League soccer game? Like, look at all the hatred in those family members. They are shouting their brains out at that child. Oh, wait a second. Maybe it's not always hate. Okay, but throwing stuff at somebody, that's hate. Would you see baseball? Now known as hate ball. You know, we say this is like, well, this is hate. But we've just showed you that there's all kinds of other definitions for these things that are not. And so as the church, as believers, can I ask that we would use words in their intended meanings? Can we be the ones who just like, I'm just not going to go down the road and, and, sit and just use the words as they're being changed. No, I'll call out people on those things. It's not hate. It's not hate. And, and, and on other sides, maybe, you know, it's not love. It's not love. You know, the truth is that words and people change over time. They do. We know that. But first Peter, Peter wrote to the new believers. He quoted Isaiah who was writing to the older you know, uh, believers. He said this in 1 Peter 1.24, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This doesn't change. No matter how culture changes, no matter how we change, this never changes. It remains the same. When we're looking for that North Star of where do I, where do I pattern my life after as a believer Man, his word never changes. And it says, and that word is the good news that was preached to you. You know, the reason why the Jewish leaders wanted to crucify Jesus is because he claimed to be God. That's what their problem was with him. He claimed he was God. And so he never said he was a good teacher or just, you know, a good rabbi. He wasn't another prophet or a messenger. He said he's God, God himself. And John chapter 8, we read it multiple times all through. And John 8, 58 says, when they're arguing about him, he's like, just tell us who you are. Like, who do you think you are? And he says it this way. Jesus answered and says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. I am. Like, I'm God. Like, you're asking? I, that's who I'm telling you. I am God. He repeats it in John chapter 10, John chapter 14. He tells the disciples. In John uh, 15, he reminds them again. In John 18, he tells Pilate that he's the king. Like he, he wasn't hiding this thought. You can't, you can't say that Jesus you know, just was a good teacher. He never said that. He's like, I'm God. Choose whether you're going to believe that or not. Well, John would later describe God in his letter to the new believers. When John wrote other letters later on, he wrote this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, dear friends, let's continue to love one another. Why? Because love comes from God. And anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John begins to say, hey, not only was Jesus God, but God is love. So we know that Jesus is love. There's no doubt. If you look at him, you'll find out that he is love. Not just that he had the ability to love. Not that he was, um, you know, that he could have the feelings of love. He is love. And in everything that Jesus did, nothing of it ever was unloving. It may have been uncomfortable for those there. It may have been shocking to some, but it was never unloving. And for us, we can learn that what we learn about God, uh, or what we learn about love, sorry, we learn about God. When we look at what true love is, it's actually a reflection of who God is himself for us to see. You know, the Greeks... The Greeks had it kind of right. They just said, you know, instead of like just blanket statementing everything with this word love, let's call things specifically what they were. 
So they would have this love that the, the word phileo, which was friendship love. If you said, hey, I phileo you, it's like, hey, we're friends. You know, we're buddies. That's that kind of love. We would say, hey, man, I love you, man. They had like, no, it's I, I phileo you. They had the, not to be confused with eros, which was a sexual romantic love. You don't say that to your buddy. <laughs> I love you, man, had a whole different connotation then. Right? It's like, but th- this is what it was, an eros. And then they had storge, which was for the family. I, I love my family. There was an understanding of what that meant. And then there was this word they used that they brought in, which was agape. This is a word Jesus brought in, this agape uh, were des- uh, described as love. And, and the, the people who described what agape meant, the definition for it, they found it in how he used it and what happened in the, in the conversations he had and the actions he had. And in John, 1 John 4 and throughout the scriptures, this word agape is used over and over and over. And what is the definition? It's this. It's perfect love. It means this, to value someone, to esteem them, to show concern for them, to be faithful towards them, to delight in them. This is the agape love that he says, this is who God is. This is, this, is, this is what he thinks of people. This is how he defines his character. And his definition of love is an expression of, him, of himself. If you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. I, most of the scriptures we'll put on the screen for you today. But this one I want you to turn to because we hear this one so often at weddings. We say, oh, this is, but Paul wasn't writing to a couple getting married. He was writing to a group of Jesus followers saying, hey, this is what love really is. This is what love looks like. If you're wondering, you know, is this loving or not loving, here's what love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, he says, Love is patient and kind. Love's not jealous. Love's not boastful. Love's not proud. Love's not rude. It doesn't demand its own way. Love's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love's always hopeful. Love endures through every circumstance. How many of you here are like, man, I wish my spouse loved me like that? No hands. But we do, right? Man, it's like that. Yeah, that sounds like, wow, that sounds loving. But what I want you to notice is that we just said that God is love. And it's that same word that you could read this with the same thing of saying God is patient and kind. You know, God's not jealous or boastful or rude. God's not keeping a record of our wrongs. <laughs> Praise his name. Right? He's like, he's de- describing who he is. That if you want to know what God is like, I didn't see there, love is in the sky waiting to smite whoever he can. Love is angry at everything possible. You know, there's, there's this description of who God is. And how he responds in love. As we look at Jesus and how he responds in love, he's the example of what a loving response is, uh, looks like to, to us and to our world. You know, John, as we've been reading through John, John and the other gospel writers, they write about some of Jesus' loving responses that the people then and us now would look at and go, oh, that doesn't seem loving. That doesn't seem loving. You can look these up later, but Mark 10, it talks about how a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. This rich young guy comes to Jesus and he says to him, Jesus, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? I think we have a painting of this guy. We, uh, somebody was there uh, and yet found him. There you go. So rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus, asks him, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, just keep all the commandments. And he's like, I've done that. He's like, okay. And Mark goes on to say this. He says, and Jesus loved this man. Specifically says, Jesus agape this man. And then says to him next, one last thing, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. The man looks at Jesus and then sadly walks away and Jesus lovingly just lets him go. Man, 
think about that, we'd be like, Jesus, can't, whoa, 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 can't you just change the rules a little bit for him? Like, can't, can't he just, like, have you and have his money? Like, why, why not? And Jesus would later describe in Matthew, he describes how, he says, no, no, you can't have two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You can't love God and money. You can't do these two things, and it's the most loving thing I can tell this guy is that that's what's on the table here. It's either choosing me or choosing him. There's no middle ground. Like, man, sounds a little unloving. Like, if somebody came to church today, it's like, hey, I want to give my life to Christ. I'm like, yeah, it's going to cost you, you know, your life. We can't dumb it down in any way. You're like, oh, I don't want that. So many of us would be like, oh, but just come back next week. He'll talk about something less, less uh, sketchy next week. Gary will be here. But he can't. You know, his loving response. And we're like, oh, man, I didn't think that was very loving. John 11, it's a famous story of of, uh, Jesus and Lazarus. And Lazarus, uh, Jesus is just in this town. And all of a sudden he receives word from from someone saying, hey, your dear friend Lazarus, man, he's, he's really sick, Jesus. And he says, he actually uses the word phileo. The the, the man you, like your best buddy, he's sick. We're calling on you to come. You know what it says? Luke writes it down, or sorry, John writes it down and says, it says, although Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, although he agape them, he stayed where he was for two days, long enough to let Lazarus die. And we know the rest of the story. Like, well, of course, because he was going to raise him from the dead. They didn't know that. They're thinking, man, like, this isn't a very loving response, Jesus. We might feel the same way. How could he be so unloving? In John 13, we see the next one where it says that Jesus, it says in verse 1, he says he loved his disciples uh, all through his ministry, and he loved them right till the end. He showed them the full extent of his love. How? He got up from the table at the Last Supper, and he got down on his knees, and he began to wash their feet. And they were like shocked. Peter's like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. And she's like, Peter, this is how I'm loving you. I'm showing you a loving response right now, and it's what I actually want you to do for one another. Here's the part I want you to notice that in all of these, it kind of encapsulated in John 13, verse 7, where Jesus replied to Peter. He's like, Peter, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. You don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. And here's a few examples, and there's more throughout Scripture of of these things where people were like shocked by Jesus, what they thought was maybe an unloving response or a shocking response of what love looked like. But I feel like, you know, we find ourselves sometimes in that place. You know, have you ever been to the mall where you get the sign that just says, you are here? That's basically what Jesus was doing for them. He's like, Peter, you are, I got to make sure I get this right tonight. You are here. You don't understand yet, but one day you will. I know Mary and Martha, you want me to come right now, but you are here. And one day you'll be like, oh, okay, I get it now. We have it in all of our lives, right? You tell your kids, kids, you got to save money. And they're like, I don't want to, I want to buy everything. You are here. But someday, you'll understand. Exercise. Oh, come on, really? Do I have? You are here. But someday, you'll understand. And when it comes to God's definition of love, God's definition of love, I think there's many who don't understand. I think there's many even in the church that are, you are here. But hopefully one day, we get it now. That when we look at things and say, oh, that's unloving. Do we really know if it's un- truly unloving or not? So here's a few thoughts to consider today. God is love does not equal love is God. In our culture where it's like, oh, if we want to even in the church, God is love, so then love must equal God or love must be godly. I want to say today that there are some loves 
that God calls sinful. There is some agape that God calls sinful. How is that possible? How is that possible? Listen to a talk by Vadi Bakum. I'd encourage you to listen to it as well. It's called Do Not Love the World. You can find it on YouTube. But I want to give you a couple of the thoughts from it today in 1 John chapter 2. That's where I'd like us to turn, 1 John 2. So flip to the right. 1 John 2, John again writes these words to believers. To believers. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. And I just want to pause right there for a minute. When he's talking about the world, John uses three different, uh, he uses the same word world, but he speaks of it in three different ways. Some places he describes world as being the creation, the planet, everything you see around you, the world. He's not talking about that right now. He's not saying do not love this creation, this planet. You can love a sunset, you can love a good steak, you can love the world. He says that's not what he's talking about. In other places, he describes people, the people groups of the world. He's like, the people are the world. For God so loved the world, that's who he's talking about, the people of the world. John's not talking about that world here either. There's a third definition he uses, and it it is the belief system that is opposed to God's kingdom. It's the belief system of beliefs and actions that are directly opposed to God's kingdom. Everything that's against his kingdom, his word against him. He's like, that's also the world. And when John's saying to them, do not love this world, he's talking about do not love that belief system, that worldview, that ideology. He says, do not love it or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. He's writing this to believers. So today, I need to be clear on this. If you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower, somebody just invited you to church, you're like, yeah, I'll come check it out. I heard they have free stuff. Uh, whatever, Whatever got you here. And maybe you're like, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not a Jesus follower. He's not speaking this to you specifically. There's, and we shouldn't either. There's no right for us to call somebody to do something, that, to follow Jesus when they haven't committed their life to follow Christ. But to the believers, he's saying, hey, this is a loving response. Is Do not love this world. Do not love this world. You know, the enemy's strategy, the enemy has a strategy to, to capture believers. And it's this. It's tolerate. Then accept, then celebrate, then normalize, and then embrace love, this world. The worldview, the ideology that we see, ramp, uh, see around us and have, for, have since, since time began. It's this desire, this, this temptation to tolerate and then accept and celebrate, normalize and embrace. And John's saying to the believers, do not love this world. Do not love this world. That belief system is opposed to God's kingdom. You know, we see in Romans, Paul writes, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Don't act like this world. Don't embrace their ideology. He says, but be transformed by his word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why is this kind of love a sinful love? It would say this, it's based on the wrong object. What does John say in 1 John 2.15? If you love this world or the things it offers you, He says, when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. He's saying it's the wrong object. If you love the ideology, the world, that worldview, he says, you do not have the love of the Father in you. He's saying you can't do both. You you and I think that's something that to believers has to be crystal clear. You can you you can't love the, the world, love the people of the world, and love the ideology as well. We're called to love the people, not called to love the ideology. It's that love, he says, it's sinful if you love the wrong object. 1 John 2, verse 16, he carries on. He says, for the world offers only a craving. 
There's that word, desire, a craving or a desire for physical pleasure, a craving or a desire for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. And I don't highlight pride because of the month we're in. I, write, I highlight this because he writes the three different things and their feelings, their desires. They're like the, oh, every, I want everything I can see or I, I want everything that, uh, that, that feels good to me or, man, I want that feeling of, wow, I'm quite something. His desires are like, he's like, that's what's, that's what's baiting you. He's like, do not love that. So John's clarifying the word love. He's saying those words, the word love, he's like, in this sense, it's this craving, this desire, these proud feelings. He says that, that type of love, it's coming from the wrong source. Not only is it the wrong object, it's the wrong source. Those cravings and desires and feelings, they're not from the Father. They're actually from the world. You know, this week we were reading about how, uh, I was reading about how um, uh, Judas betrays Jesus. And as you read it, it says that, that it says at the beginning that Satan, he, um, he put a thought in Judas's heart. And if you, re- if you look that up, it's actually a fishing term. It's like he cast a net, hoping to catch, hoping to catch Judas into this ability or this opportunity to betray Jesus, casting a net. And then later on at dinner, when he takes the bread, it says, then Satan entered him and he was off to the races. I realize that just as Jesus is fishing for men, so is our enemy. And they both use what they think is the same bait. Jesus uses the perfect love of the Father to say, man, it's my kindness drawing you to repentance. But the enemy's casting a, what looks like love as well. And man, is drawing, drawing us somewhere. And the clarity that we would have, you know, you think those feelings, those cravings, those desires, those actions are good, but you are here. And we hope that you'd be here. You know, you don't understand now when you read some of these things and say like, God, it sounds like you're against people. He's like, you are here. But one day we hope you're here. That saying, do not love, man, it's a warning to our world. It's a warning to our world to realize that there's something we need to turn away from. But that's not our job as the church to condemn or to judge and say, you know, you're all all people that God hates because he doesn't. Right? It's not our job to judge, but rather to warn. And we do it in all different ways, too. You know, I can say simply things like this. Your love of sugar, <laughs> your love of sugar results in something. Anybody know? Decay, disease. It's not unloving me to tell you that your love of sugar is leading to, to something you don't want. Your love of money results often in compromise, and you do things you would never be proud of somebody else for doing. But what was it? It results in something. The love of pleasure. You know, oh, it's a, I just love pleasure. And he's saying, yeah, but it results in things like excess or addiction or betrayal of marriages and families. He's reminding them, you are here. But one day you'll understand. It might sound unloving, but you are here. Because your love of this world, your love of sin, it results in death. And John says this, do not love this world. Why? Here's the reason. 1 John 2.17, he says, because this world, the ideology, the worldview, the belief system, he says it's fading away. It's passing away. It's dying. It's on, it's on its way down along with everything that people crave but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. What's John saying? His warning to the church, his warning to the world is this is a sinking ship. <laughs> that it is going down. Some are like, yeah, our world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know what? John's saying the same thing. 
that worldview, that ideology, it's going down. It's like a sinking ship. And I was reminded of the story of a, and I'm, I hope I pronounce his name right, Shavarsh Karapetyan. You can spell that any way you want in your notes. <laughs> this man, uh, Shavarsh, was a, a, an, immediate, an Armenian swimmer. And uh, one day as he was training, he was running around a lake. He hears this big boom, and he sees a trolley car go off the, off the road and down into the, the lake. And here's a picture of them pulling it out of the lake, but it was 15 uh, feet down below the water. And Shavarsh, being a swimmer, immediately jumped into the cold water, dove down, kicked out the back window of the trolley, and began to reach in and try and rescue people. His legs and his arms were all cut up. He remembers the pain, but he realizes it didn't matter. There was people's lives at stake. And he began to reach out and draw people out and drag them to safety. He dove down 40 times, pulling 20 people whose lives were saved as a result. One of them, a 17-year-old, remembered and said later, it was like, I didn't know who got me, but they grabbed me from behind and just roughly dragged me out and brought me to this place. And then he says, I blacked out again. But later, thankful to be alive. Javarsh at one point dove down, he was exhausted, came up, and he was carrying a, one of the seat cushions instead of a person. And he says, and after all of that, after people lauded him as a hero, he says, the thing never leaves my mind that in that moment, I grabbed a seat cushion instead of a person. I could have saved one more. Man, what kind of people? You know, we laud somebody like that as like a hero. Do you know that our world, he's saying, that's a sinking ship. And he, people like Shavarsh, who are going to dive in, even at their own pain, their own hurt, to say, Man, like I don't want to see you go down. Seeing others who were wrapped up in seatbelts and we were cutting them loose to get them to safety. You know, it's that message that John's giving to us as well as this. He's saying, hey, the, the cravings, the desires, this, this, this world, he says, it's like you're tethering yourself to it. On sailboats, you tether yourself to the boat. In case you fall off, you can pull on the tether to get back. I love that Chris used that word this morning in the worship. That was tethered to. He says, that's, that's what's happening here. He says, when, when it's like these things of like, oh, the ideology, the worldview, or whatever, we want to kind of accept that as well. He's like, you're tethering yourself to a sinking ship. And when the ship goes down, so do you. And what's the call that you would release that tether and tether it to Christ? We can't save one another, but that we would be tethered to him. The most loving thing a person can do is actually reveal to somebody that they're in a place that's going a different way, especially believer to believer. If we see another believer living in a lifestyle of, that's, that's following this world, that's why John wrote, do not love this world. But there's a way to do that. I want to wrap it up with this. On Twitter, I see often the ways not to do that. You see all these things on Twitter and you see Christians, well-meaning Christians, grab their Bible scripture and throw it out like a truth bomb on Twitter. And then, you know, they're just like, and we're like, why are we calling unbelievers to follow something they've never believed in? They don't need to change their behavior. That's not what the message of the gospel is. The message of the gospel is they need to come to a savior. They need to experience love himself. But what we find is they throw their truth bombs at one at, at, at the other side, and then you know they, then they start arguing with each other about which truth bomb is the right truth bomb, and then they start throwing them at each other. And Jesus gave us the loving response. He was pretty clear about the loving response, and we see it in 1 John 2:17. He says, "And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever." And there's this key: anything who does, anyone who does what pleases God. See, our goal is not to please people. 
And our goal is not to please people on the other side who are like, oh, we're not strict enough. We're not, we, we need more, more truth. He's very clear that we speak the truth with love, but we only have one person we please. Any idea who that is? Him. Him. That we would live our lives to please Him. That we would know love Himself and live in that way. That we would recognize His loving response and live it out our, our, ourselves. And what is His loving response? Just flip back to John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. It's the last scripture for today. I want to... I want to turn to John chapter 3, verse 16. You're like, oh, wait, I know this one. Yeah, but let's just read it together. For God loved the world. God agape the world, the people of this world, you and me included, so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. The judgment's not on behavior or actions. It's on the fact that they chose not to believe in him. It says, and the judgment is based on this fact, that God's light himself came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil, and all who do evil hate the light, refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they're doing what God wants. And what a powerful, powerful thought. Because rarely would any of us say that love looks like someone going and hanging on a cross, suffering the most horrible, torturous, painful death in someone else's place. If we thought that was love, it'd be on every Valentine's card. You never see it. Why? Because we're like, that doesn't sound loving, and yet it was, and yet it is. We see that Jesus loved the sinner and hated the sin. And we hear that cliche, and I hope that the cliche doesn't suck the life out of that statement. That Jesus calls us to love the sinner and hate the sin. Love the world and hate the world. Love the people, hate the ideology. And, you know, the truth is that God's the only one who can perfectly love and perfectly hate. He's the only one who gets that right every single time. But we would do better to get closer to what his desire is. And the only way we do that is to know him more. To know him more. That we would love the world and hate the world system of thought and action that's opposed. That we wouldn't accept, tolerate, celebrate, normalize, and embrace that we wouldn't be caught in a trap in the same way, that we would speak the truth, but speak it in love. You know, Jesus said this, you may be hated for it, but he calls you to respond in love. You might be hated, but you don't get to hate back. Man, we've, we've got to understand that distinction so we learn how to truly love people. They may not always understand now, right? They may be here, but hopefully one day they're here. What did Jesus do? Jesus called sin, sin. And then he called people to turn from it. He called sin, sin, and then he died to pay for it. He, wasn't, he didn't mince words. When the woman who was at the well, he, he called her sin, sin, and then she turned from that to live a different lifestyle. The woman caught in adultery. He's like, does anybody condemn you? And, and she's like, no. And he's like, I don't condemn you either. But now go and leave your life of sin. To every person, he says, untether from that and tether to me. Come follow me. Most of the New Testament writers repeated over and over. Most of the letters in the New Testament were written to believers with this same thought in mind. 
Galatians 6, 1 is 1. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. What is he saying? If you see another believer, and to the Jesus followers, this is the message today. If you see another believer going after the ideology of the world, say, oh, it sounds good. It's it's like, no, do not love. Do not love that world. And how? We simply focus on loving him first. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, obey my commandments. But you might notice this little thing in your Bible, there'll be this little note, footnote, that says, if you love me, it's written, you will obey my commandments. Jesus is saying, hey, if you love me, obey my commandments. He's saying, hey, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Just focus on loving me. If you love me, you can't help but bear the fruit of a loving response to others. You'll obey my commands, commands like love one another as I have loved you. Commands like love your enemies, pray for them, do good to them, value them, esteem them, show concern for them that agape love. Why? Because it's what he did for us. It's what he did for us. We have no business looking at another person and saying, oh, we have some finger to point. We can't. Not at the person. The ideology, 100%. But at the person, man, we would be that person if it wasn't for Christ. But he draws us. He draws us. Last thought today. It's by a man named Edwin Hatch. Edwin Hatch. Terrible hair, great song. He, um, I can say that because he's, he's not around to come find me. He wrote this in the 1800s. And it's my prayer for us today. My prayer for you. My prayer for me is this. He wrote these words, breathe on me, breath of God. Fill my life anew, that I may love the way you love and do what you do. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill my life anew, that I may love the way you love and do what you would do. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. But it just reveals you for who you truly are. I hear loves bigger and better than we fully understand. Father, I pray that by your spirit today you bring clarity into our hearts of who you are and what you desire for us to do. For those here today who don't know you, Lord, would they recognize your love drawing their hearts to you, rescuing them from a broken world, bringing them into life as it was meant to be. Jesus, may we not forget that quickly. Your sacrifice for us, may it be first and foremost in our minds that we recognize your love for us and draw closer to that, that you'd fill us with your love, that we might be like branches connected to a vine bearing fruit because you're flowing through us. Forgive us for where we've got it wrong, for where we've hurt people in the process. Lord Jesus, I pray that you, as love itself, would flow through our lives this day, this week, this year. Jesus, thank you for this time together, for building your church. May we shine like bright lights out in our communities, wherever we find ourselves. May they truly experience what true love is really all about. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, in a sense felt like this might be so much information it should be two messages but then some wouldn't be here for the next one so thank you for the time this morning may it 
churn in your hearts. Uh, we're going to uh, dismiss and set a 15-minute timer. If you're interested in asking some questions, having some feedback, I'd love to chat about this more with you. We're going to meet up here in 15 minutes. Um, but in the meantime, go grab a coffee. Go get your kids. No pressure to come for that. Feel free to just continue to hang out with one another. Enjoy your day. And uh, we'll see you next week.